As we well know, there are various forms of Tumah impurity and various ways in which Tumah can be imparted to something or someone else. The Zav and the Zava, which are impurities associated with bodily discharge, have a unique way that they can transmit impurity that no other source of Tumah impurity can. And so we're going to examine how Rashi extracts that out of a Pasuk in this week's parasha and specifically aligned with the commentary of the Torah's Koyhanim. So here's the Pasuk. The Pasuk tells us that if a Zov touches an earthenware vessel, then it has to be broken. There's no way to purify it. Whereas if it is a wooden vessel, it can be purified through immersion in water. So Pirish Rashi, look how Rashi explains the first part of the Pasuk. Firstly, he quotes as his headlines the words, An earthenware vessel that a Zav will touch. And then he explains that you might have thought that this Pasuk was teaching us a different law. You might have thought the Pasuk is teaching us that what's unique about a Zav is that even if he touches an earthenware vessel on the outside, the vessel would become impure. Now, the details of how this logic would play out, that is discussed in the Medjush Tereskehanim, Ad, and now Rashi brings us to the part within Tereskehanim that is most relevant to us, when it says, that he will touch the entity, the earthenware vessel, what kind of touch would affect the entire vessel at once? This is Tumas Heset. Heset means where the Zav causes the object to move, to lift, even if he doesn't directly touch it. So he could use a lever or whatever it is that he uses. So now, the first question we have to address is, what about this Pasuk is not clear for us at the Pshat simplistic level? That Rashi decided he had to explain the words, touching, based on a Midrashic perspective. What is difficult to understand about the words touch it? Touch it. We know what that means. It means you touch it. Why did Rashi not explain that this expression to touch an earthenware vessel is literal to touch? And of course, if it meant to touch, it would mean however you touch the earthenware vessel, even if it is from the outside. Why was Rashi dissatisfied with that possibility and had to bring a medrash and say, no, actually it means hesed, which is this strange halacha that we wouldn't necessarily have thought of or known of and certainly wouldn't have called touching. So we're going to look at various possibilities of how to answer and explain this. First of all, First of all, what's clear is that even though the words in the Pasuk are Yigaboy, to touch, it actually doesn't make sense to translate it as to touch. Why not? Because already previously in Parashat Shemini, when we learned about the eight different types of creeping creatures that are considered impure, Rashi already told us them based on the Pasuk, that it is impossible for an earthenware vessel to be Tomei from touch. The only way an earthenware vessel becomes Tomei is if the impurity gets inside the vessel, even if it doesn't touch the edges. As long as it's in the airspace of the vessel, it makes it impure. So if Rashi's already told me that, that a Kli cannot be made impure by touch, then logically, over here, when we're told that the Zav touches the earthenware vessel, it would not make sense to now say, and by touching it, that alone makes an earthenware vessel impure. If you touch it on the outside, we know that won't make it impure. But the reason that's not so straightforward is because 
who says a sheretz, which is one kind of impurity, and a zav, which is a more extreme kind of impurity, would have the same laws. Because we could argue that in Parashat Shmini, where we discussed the Tuma associated with these eight creatures called Shiratzim, they are lesser forms or sources of impurity. And maybe it's in their context that that only with a Sheretz, it can only impart impurity to a, an earthenware vessel if it gets inside the vessel. But then we'd argue, whereas now we're dealing with the impurity of a zov, which is a much more intense kind of impurity. And how do we know that it's more intense? That a zov or a zav have a unique set of laws that if they sit or lie on a piece of anything, they make it impure, which doesn't really apply to other kinds of impurity. So maybe there's a logical reason to say that maybe there is a logical reason to say that a, an earthenware vessel, if it's touched by a zav, because the zav is a more extreme kind of impurity, would be impure even if the zav touches it on the outside. And so therefore, and then maybe we could just say that we're over here where the Torah tells us that a zav touches an earthenware vessel, it actually means touches. So because you might have thought that way, I'll gain, therefore Rashi had to clarify. In order to show us that that's not the correct way to think. And don't imagine that there's a different law for a sheret than there is for a zav. And don't think that a zav can make an earthenware vessel impure by touching it on the outside. Especially because you'd be, you'd be inclined to say that because it fits neatly with a pshat that yiga actually means touch. Rashi wants to move us away from that way of thinking. Therefore, hetik rashman apostok, that's why Rashi in his headline quoted, not only the words to touch, as if that's all he wanted to explain, but dafka those words that would actually draw our attention to the distinction over here, that it's uchli cheres, number one, it is an earthenware vessel which can only become impure when the impurity is inside, and ashi gaboy hazov, and it's being touched over here by a zov, which is a higher level of impurity than what we've already learned about a sheretz, which would lend you to, which would lead you to think that maybe in this case the zov can transmit impurity to the kli cheres by touching it on the outside, and Rashi says, let's tackle that, v'kosa, and he writes as follows, You would think that because of these circumstances, even if the Zav touches the earthenware vessel on the outside, which normally would not make it impure, because here we're dealing with a Zav who is an extreme form of impurity, Therefore, as she says, let's discuss it based on how it is explained in Torah's Kahanim, why that's not what the Torah is teaching us. And it's not going to leave us believing that a Zav can uh, de- de- defile a, an earthenware vessel by touching it on the outside. And just for context, here let's have a look at what the Torah's Kahanim said, because Rashi didn't really give us all the information for the Torah's Kahanim. He just kind of referenced the Torah's Kahanim and cut to the chase what it says all the way at the end. So what else did the Torah's Kahanim say? Here's what it said. It said as follows. You might use logic here. And your logic would say this. Ah, you want to say that a Zav is a more intense kind of impurity than a Sheretz. So maybe that's why a Zav could also contaminate an earthenware vessel from the outside. Well, look at this. A dead body, a corpse, is an even more intense version of impurity than a Zav. And a dead body cannot make a Kri impure by touching it on the outside. 
says the Torah's So the logic now is that obviously Azov, who is less impure than a corpse, surely cannot contaminate it from the outside. But then the Torah's continues and says, one second, who really is so clear that Tumas Meis, that the corpse is a higher extent of impurity than Azov? Says the Torah's Loy, the logic doesn't follow. You're trying to compare a Zov to a corpse that does not have that unique capacity to transmit impurity through sitting or lying. Therefore, the Torah's Kanim says you might have thought that the Zov, in a certain respect, is stricter or more capable of, of imparting impurity than a corpse, and maybe the Zov can make the earthenware vessel impure by touching it from the outside. Talmud Loimar, that's why the verse of boy, which actually is going to create for us a Gezerah Shava, where you have two different psukim in two different contexts that have a common word or phrase that link the content of the two concepts. So here it says Ashigaboy. Later on it's going to say Ashetuvushalboy, an earthenware, so to speak, oven that something is cooked inside. So we make a Gazer Shabbat just like later when the Torah refers to boy, it actually means inside the earthenware vessel. So here also it means inside the earthenware vessel. Okay, so what have we said so far? We said that Rashi is concerned that you and I might believe that the Zav, because it's an unusual kind of impurity, can in, impart impurity to a klicheres by touching it on the outside. Therefore, he had to explain to us that that's not what the Torah is saying to us over here. Instead, the Torah is using the words kiga or ashiga boy to tell us that Tumas Heset, that if the Zov causes this item, this klicheres, to lift, to move, it would become impure. But, this raises a question for us. Im metamas. If it's true that there is no way you could ever touch an earthenware vessel from the outside and make it impure, why does the Torah use the expression touch? For that, Rashi has to conclude with uh, quoting what the Torah's Kanim said at the end, which is, What kind of touch touches the entire entity all at once? Because the, the Pasuk says, You touch all of it. So what way could you touch something that you touch all of it in one shot? That's causing the item to move. Because if you cause it to move, you've caused the entire item to move. So what's Rashi's logic? You would have thought that the Torah is telling us Azov touching a Klicheres makes it impure. It's not the case. Instead, it's telling us if he causes it to move, then we are now introduced to a new category of Tumah, that Azov or Azova can impart impurity by causing an item to move. Now, what we've got to understand is Rashi seems to do something very unusual over here, quoting part of the Torah's Kohanim and not all of it, where he could have either been more elaborate or he could have been more succinct. So we've got to understand because each way you look at it, Rashi's presentation does seem a bit odd. If Rashi felt that we need the information from Torah's Kohanim in order to explain what exactly is going on in this Pasuk, why it's not teaching us that Tumah is imparted to Klicheres by Azov touching it on the outside, and instead it's teaching us the law of Hesed. So if we need the Torah's Kohanim to teach me that, then Rashi should have quoted everything that the Torah's Kohanim has to say, including the logical proof that to say touch over here cannot actually mean touch. 
Now, Rashi didn't quote the whole Torah's Kanim, which implies that he expects us to go look it up. So if Rashi was relying on us doing our homework and looking to see what the Torah's Kanim has to say, then you don't have to quote anything. He didn't have to quote any of what the Torah's Kanim had to say. Rashi could have just stopped at the point where he says, this is explained in Torah's Kanim, and then we'd go and we'd do our homework. And it's not the only time Rashi would have done something like that. We see Rashi does it in Vayikra, where he says, If you feel that this phrase within the Pasuk is superfluous, it's explained in Torah's Kanim, and he leaves it at that. So in other words, it's normal for Rashi to say, go do your homework. Here Rashi's done a little bit of an in-between. Partial quote, instead of a complete quote. So why? Either give us a complete quote, or no quote at all, just a reference. Now you might want to answer and say, "Be so could give an answer, which is The Rashi had to quote the last few words of the Torah's Kahanim. What does it mean to touch the Kriheres? In this case, it means Hesed. Because that is what's going to explain the words Yigaboy. And that's what Rashi's objective is, to explain the words Yigaboy. So he has to quote or extract the part of Torah's Kahanim that explains these words. Whereas the rest of the conversation in Torah's Kahanim that precedes that part is only to explain the logic behind the conclusion. Rashi doesn't have to tell us that. You want to know more information, how we arrived at this conclusion, then go look in Torah's Kahanim. So maybe that's why Rashi left out the, the lion's share of what Torah's Kahanim had to say and cut to the chase. Because that's the only part that's really directly relevant to our understanding of the words Asher Yigaboy. But that's not so straightforward. It's a little bit of a stretch to answer that. Shaharei, commotion is bor kame pe'omim. We've explained many times. Darkei shal Rashi levo'er befiroshei kol ma'ashemuchrach la'avonas p'shutei shal mikra. Rashi doesn't leave out information. He always gives us everything that we need to know in order to understand the pshat, the simplest understanding of the Pasuk. And he presents it clearly in such a way that a child learning Chumash for the first time could also understand it. Because we could have mistakenly understood that this Pasuk that says touching the Kriheres might have meant touching it on the outside. Rashi should have told us why that cannot be the translation here. And he should not have relied on the fact that you might do your homework and you might read the Torah's Kahanim. Especially when you consider that the logic used in Torah's Kahanim hinges on a Gzeir Shava, which is not Pshat, it's not the simplest explanation of the Pesukim. So therefore, we have no alternative but to say that the simplest way to explain these psukim and prove to us that this pasuk is not talking about a zav conveying impurity by touching an earthenware vessel from the outside, and instead it is introducing to us the principle of hesed, that if he causes movement, that transmits impurity. The proof of that must be, cannot be, based on the Gezer Shava, because then Rashi would have quoted it. It must be that all the information we need to know of how to interpret this Pasuk will be included within what Rashi chose to quote from the Torah's Kohanim. 
And then the fact that Rashi, in addition to that, also tells us, as explained in Torah's Kehanim, that's to add more value to the proof or the logic behind it. And, and Rashi's happy for you to go look at that and read it on your own because it's bonus value. But the key understanding of how we know how to interpret this Pasuk is encapsulated in the words Rashi quotes from the Torah's Kehanim. So let's understand what's going on over here. You may have wanted to say, that we're going to extract the laws of Zav from the laws of Tumas Mes, the, the, the impurity associated with dead body. Because what we'll see is, that's a very extreme kind of impurity. And yet, as we've already discussed, the impurity of a corpse is not conveyed to a Kricheres if you, the corpse touches it on the outside. Where do we know this from? At the beginning of Parashas Chukas, we'll learn exactly that halacha. Okay, so now you would know that if a dead body cannot make a, an earthenware vessel impure by touching it on the outside, certainly a Zav, that is a lesser impurity, cannot do that either. And perhaps that's what Rashi wants to tell us. Rashi is not looking to rely on the Gezer Shava quoted in that Medrash that the word Ashi Yigaboy is Kol Ashi Yigaboy Kol Ashi Not looking for that Gezer Shava. Rashi wants us to understand the interpretation of this Pasuk based on the logical proposal, which is a Kalvachomer that the Torah's Kohanim mentioned. And the Kalvachomer, as we're about to see, that fits Pshat. What did the Torah's Kohanim say? If death is such a high form of impurity, and yet a dead body cannot make a Kricheres impure by touching it on the outside, clearly a Zov, which is a lesser impurity, cannot have a greater impact than the dead body. Kalvachomer is a logical sequence that we can all understand and process, so it fits Pshat. Now you'd ask, but one second, the Torah's Kahanim had pushback. The Torah's Kahanim said, yes, but in another way, the Zav is actually more strict than the, the dead body. The Torah's Kahanim, in a sense, dispelled this Kalvachomer by telling us that the Zav has certain halachas in which it is stricter than a dead body. All that leaves us with is It only creates a balance. It doesn't make the Zav less impactful than the dead body. It neutralizes the two of them and says they each have a certain element of their laws that is strict. Therefore, technically, they're of equal standing. And if I could say logically that the Zav and the dead body are equal in terms of the overall tumor capacity that they have, then it's logical according to Pshat to say that they will have the same halachic standing. So if the one cannot make a Kricheres impure by touch on the outside, neither can the other. So a Zav cannot impart impurity by touching the outside of a Kricheres. Now you might ask, say, why didn't Rashi just refer to the original Pasuk? Why does he quote the Medrash? Why didn't he quote the Pasuk? So there's two good reasons for that. 
First of all, to analyze that Pasuk is going to take a lot more discussion than Rashi would like to share at this point. If we do explain it in detail, we're not 100% clear that the first-time student will actually chap all of the intricacies of these halachas. Whereas in Torah's Kahanim, it goes through all the steps, spells it out for us, makes, makes it more accessible to understand that Azov is certainly not capable of doing more damage to the certainware vessel than a dead body can. Okay, so maybe that's what we're trying to do over here. Maybe that's Rashi's intention. Rashi wants to say, go to the Torah's Kahanim, look at the Kalvo Chomer, that will help us understand what's happening here. The truth is, it's not yet a good explanation. We still have our original question. Why didn't Rashi just say it? Why does he quote part of the Torah's canon and not the other part of the Torah's canon? Just say it. Besides that, there is no concept of either a dead body or a person contaminated by a dead body transmitting impurity by moving an object. Indirectly. Obviously, if he touches it, he touches it. Now, if the whole focus of this Pasuk is to introduce a law to us that is unique to Azov or Azava, that if they cause the indirect movement of an object, they will impart impurity to that object. So if you're already arguing that this Pasuk is introducing a unique kind of transmission of impurity that only Azov and Azava have, then who says it's Hesed? Maybe the unique transmission is that they can make something impure if it's earthenware and they touch it on the outside. And this would be a great way to explain it because then we don't have to reinterpret the words. We could say it actually means to touch. So we're still not clear how Rashi is absolutely convinced that this is introducing the laws of Hesed and how the specific reference he uses from Torah's Kanim proves it. Now, he has another suggestion of how to answer it. Maybe Rashi says, one second, there's a whole Pasuk of here. It doesn't only talk about an earthenware vessel. It also talks about a wooden vessel that has to be purified afterwards. So now, the whole Pasuk holistically would make sense if the whole Pasuk is introducing the law of Hesed that a Zav or a Zava can indirectly move something and thereby impart impurity. Well, then we'd understand why the Pasuk also talks about wooden vessels because now we would learn something about wooden vessels we didn't know before that a Zav can make them impure by indirectly moving them. And then the whole Chapan introduction of it, what would be so interesting to us would be that the Pasuk is telling us that a Klicheres can be impure by touch from the outside. Sorry, let's put it differently. Uh, I skipped a piece. Make more sense now. But if you are going to explain that Yigaboy means literally to touch, and the Pasuk wants us to know, not Hesed, but that when you touch a Klicheres on the outside as a Zov, it makes it impure. And the Pasuk wants us to know that Halocha. 
then you'll have a simple question. Why did you have to talk about wooden vessels over here? The fact that a, a, a wooden vessel could be impure because you touch it from the outside, we know that already from before. So maybe that's what prompts Rashi to explain the way that he does because it helps give context to the whole Pasuk. But even that's still difficult to fit into what Rashi said. Shem came because if Rashi did want to address the wooden vessels in the Pasuk, well, then he should have also included the words that refer to wooden vessels. At least hint at them by saying etc. Because Rashi didn't do that, he didn't refer at all to the second part of the Pasuk. That is not the part that talks about wooden vessels doesn't help our case to prove that the overall message of this Pasuk is about moving a, an, an object indirectly. As we'll explain a bit later, or perhaps there's a stronger uh, proof, as we'll see. Now, in order to understand all of this, we're going to ask an interesting question about superfluous terms or phrases or psukim used in the Torah, including here in our conversation, which will help us to understand whether or not the wooden vessels are actually key to understanding this passage. So what I mean by that, let's first ask a very big question. Let's go back. There's an earlier pasuk that says, Anything the Zav touches, without having first washed his hands, whatever or whoever is touched has to be immersed in a mikveh and is tame until the evening. Now, why do you have to tell me that? A few psukim before that had already told us, Anybody who touches the flesh, the, the body of a Zav, is Tomei and has to go to the mikveh and wait till the night. So what are you adding by saying, and if the Zav touches you? Well, obviously, if, what's the difference? If he touches you, you touch him. It's the same principle. Why has the Torah told me the same thing twice? Vadin, The halacha is, that if a Zav hasn't yet been to the mikveh, even if he stopped the actual emission of, of Zoiv, the body fluid that constitutes Zav, and he's counted the records at seven days, he could, still in, he could still impart impurity, even if he's passed all of the other symptoms, if he hasn't been to the mikveh. Now, why do, why do we have to know that? We already could have logically understood this principle from the fact that a woman who gives birth has to go to the mikveh. And even after going to the mikveh, she still is not allowed to touch anything of holiness. She has to wait until the end of the next day after she brings the carbonates that, that make her pure. So you could learn the same thing as, of course, it must be the same for Azov. If a Yoledas, a woman who gives birth, which is a lesser impurity, is not free of her impurity before going to the mikveh, surely the Zav is not free of his impurity till having gone to the mikveh. Beis ve'iker, and more importantly, even though Rashi explains that that's what this apparently superfluous Pasuk is coming to teach us, you don't have to repeat the whole Pasuk. He could have incorporated all into one pasuk. Somebody who touches a zav and the zav hasn't yet 
immersed, so then he's impure. And the person is impure. So the point over here is, why does the Torah in this conversation include information that appears to be information we already know? In fact, this is such a big question that the Gemara tackles it by saying, That is the point where the Gemara says, We learn that Azov imparts impurity through Hesed, not like the Torah's Kohanim. The Torah's Kohanim learns that Hesed is from our Pasuk. The Gemara learns that Tumas Hesed is from the earlier Pasuk. Rashi doesn't go with the Gemara. Rashi follows the opinion of Torah's Kahanim. That the first time we encounter Hesed is only in our Pasuk. So then Rashi, please explain to us. Why do we need the extra Pasuk that whatever the Zav touches has to immerse? If you've already told me that whatever touches the Zav has to immerse. It's a startlingly interesting and simple explanation. It is completely acceptable that sometimes the Torah will write an entire sentence for one detail that is new to us. In fact, sometimes we find entire sections of the Torah that are repeated almost verbatim for one detail that is, that is new to us. The Torah tells us about the creation of Adam and Chava, and then it comes back and retells us the story of Adam and Chava because of certain details that we didn't pick up the first time around. Void and the various other examples as well. So therefore, from a simple pshat level, the fact that the Torah may repeat information in order to bring us to the detail that is new, not surprising. And so therefore, there's no question. It's not a big question. Why did the Torah have to repeat the words that whatever the Zav touches? Because the Torah is introducing new information. His hands weren't washed. Rashi says to us, what are these extra words about the hands not being washed there to teach us? It's telling us that the only parts of the body that have to immerse in a mikveh in order to purify the Zav are the parts that you could see. Like hands. So now what do we know? We know that the Torah will sometimes repeat information just to give us a nugget of new insight. Now let's look at our Pasuk and how Rashi tackles it. Here we have a similar question. This is a Pasuk that tells us that if a Zav touches a Kli Cheres, it has to be broken. What are you telling me that's new? The fact that a vessel could become impure because a Zav touches it. We for sure know that from everything we've learned about the Zav before. A human can become impure by touching a Zav. So definitely then a vessel that is, um, that is predisposed to impurity. We've also learned that a Zav has a heightened sense of transmission of impurity because even by sitting or lying... Even if there's multiple 
therefore Rashi has to say, the Torah here is telling me something about how Azov transmits impurity that we did not know or expect. So you would think, you would think that that new piece of information is that Azov who touches the Kricheres on the outside makes it impure. Why would you think that because the simplest way to translate touch is touch. Touch doesn't discriminate between the inside and the outside. Therefore, Rashi says, I know what you're going to think. You're going to look at this passage and say, what's it telling me that I don't already know? You're going to see the word touching and say, ah, you're talking about a kricheres. You're talking about touch. You must be telling me what I don't already know, that a zov who touches a kricheres from the outside makes it impure. Ah, so say, but, but what about the, the second part of the passage about the wooden vessels where it's no news to us that a wooden vessel becomes impure when you touch it, no matter where you touch it? That's not a problem. Because we've already seen that it is possible to quote a whole section or a whole passage for one detail that we didn't already know. Okay, so you're not repeating the part about the word because I need to know about the word. It's because you're talking about the Kricheres that I needed to know. Now, you think, Rashi says, that I'm making this up? That it's how you might have thought, that you might have interpreted this Pasuk to mean that the Zav touching the Kricheres from the outside makes it impure? No, Hosef Rashi says, you want to know more about it? Look in Teres I'm not going to spell it out for you over here. But if you want to know the logic behind that, go look in Teres if you go and look in the Torah's Kahanim, then you'll see that it's actually quite a strong argument because Azov is a more intense form of impurity and therefore you would think that it can do things to transmit impurity even in a way that a, a, a dead body cannot. In other words, when Rashi says, look at the Torah's Kahanim, He's not talking about look specifically at the part where we debunk that that suggestion. And he's looking beyond that. So what's Rashi trying to get at? He's trying to get to the conclusion that we're talking over here about Hesed. But how do you get to that conclusion? First, you have to know that there was a logical assumption that this Pasuk was going to tell me a Zav can impart impurity to a Kricheres by touching it on the outside. But that he doesn't have to get into the details about that. He can tell us and etc. And we could look it up in the Torah's Kahanim and find it out for ourselves. The thing we need to know, obviously, is the part that he does extract out of the Torah's Kehanim, which is why we reject that suggestion. Why do we reject that suggestion? That's from the end of the Torah's Kehanim. That what kind of touch would affect the entire entity at once? It's when you touch it in a way that it makes it move. as we'll explain in greater detail. So what's Rashi done for us? Rashi says, look at this Pasuk and immediately ask yourself, what are you telling me about a Zav imparting impurity to a Klecheres that I didn't already know or couldn't have worked out logically from before? Ah, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that it's teaching me that it means that if a Zav touches the Klecheres from the outside, it makes, him, it makes it impure. 
Now, look in the Torah's Kanim, it will give you the full version of why we would think that that is a proposal. Says Rashi, I'm most concerned with how the Torah's Kanim concludes, which is to reject that suggestion and instead tell us that this is where we learn the halakha of Heset. Why here? As we've already pointed out, you could argue that this entire pasuk is unnecessary because I could have worked it all out logically that Azav imparts impurity to vessels. The fact that the pasuk started off by saying and earthenware vessels that are touched by Azav is a double extra. Meaning to say the entire pasuk appears to be superfluous, but these words, definitely who needed them? Because, this pasuk follows completely from the preceding pasuk, which is the pasuk that said, anything that the Zav touches. So you could have easily then concluded it by saying, and a, an earthenware vessel should be broken. I know we're talking about a Zav touching things, because that was the context we've just come from. Look at our pasuk. It doesn't say it again before the wooden vessels. Again, the zav touched it. Doesn't repeat again that the zav touched the wooden vessels. We have enough seichel to know the flow. So why does it not only repeat a pasuk that we could have worked out logically, but a dafka repeats that the zav touched the klicheres? Therefore, you have to conclude that the secret of this pasuk lies in those extra words. Yiga boy touching it. Kavonas yiga boy kan. The intention of the words to touch in this pasuk, is to introduce a new means of touching that we haven't yet encountered. Yigazehu boy. This is where you touch it itself. A way to touch the vessel that the whole vessel is impacted all at once. Unlike normal physical touch, where you only touch one part of the item, not the whole item. The whole item. So that's what Rashi's picking up on. Not only did you repeat to tell me there's a Chiddush about Azov, but you repeated Yigaboy to tell me that's where the Chiddush lies. Look how Rashi says it. What kind of touching is like the whole vessel itself? That's the process of Heset. Which causes the entire vessel to shift, to move, to, to, to shake. Now, if we had gone with the original proposal, which is that this Pasuk wanted to tell us that a Krikheres can become impure when you touch it on the outside, then, as then the words that would have alerted us to the Chiddush would have been the words, earthenware vessels. boy, or maybe the word boy. But the specific expression to touch it, that is the key. That's what tells us that we're talking specifically over here about a kind of interaction with a vessel that moves the whole vessel. Okay. Quite an abstract and intricate Rashi, but the lesson is very beautiful. Earthenware vessels are effectively made from earth. They are symbolic of humans who are also made from earth. 
as the Pasuk says, that Hashem formed us out of the earth. And ki as we know very well, the Pasuk says, you are earth and you return to earth. So what's the lesson? The first thing that we know is that an earthenware vessel does not become impure by touching it from the outside. Meaning, there are material, physical, mundane, even hedonistic things that attach themselves to us by virtue of us living in this world. And they attach to the body. The body is considered the outside of the person, the external part of the person. So the external part of a human being's experience can become contaminated. But it doesn't make the whole being or the essence of the person impure. Because that's how they decided to create us. That the human body needs to eat and drink. And all the other features of this world. These are all things that by virtue of nature we enjoy. We didn't choose this. It's Hashem made us. And our objective in spiritual development is not to break our physical body and bodily experiences. Like the famous saying of the Baal Shem Tov, who interprets how you assist the animal in distress to represent how you assist the body in distress. Our goal is to use the body and elevate the body to become a vehicle for godliness. It's not our fault that things of this world have stuck to us as we've gone through the world. We've picked up dust. Of course, at some point we're going to have to clean up. But it's not our fault. It's a big difference between cleansing and the fact that perhaps a person did something that was malicious. Now, there's a very important disclaimer. When does this work? When the person understands themselves as Hashem created them. That I am an earthenware vessel, which represents complete submission to Hashem, just like a kricheres is not fancy, and it's made of earth. But if a person sees themselves as a wooden vessel, I'm a developed person, like a tree that has grown and become a big deal. Or worse, or you see yourself as metal. When you become hard because of ego, like metal is hard. Such a person who is not the way that Hashem designed them is susceptible to real invasion of impurity into their being. That's why Rashi says, you might think that impurity can be imparted even from an external touch of impurity. Rashi is telling us, you might think that if it's a very intense impurity like Zov, it could affect you even if it touches you in the external part of you. It could affect you deeply. Because the big difference between Zav, which could affect either males or females, versus Nida, which is a natural experience of women on a regular basis, is that Zav implies too much blood, too much bodily emission. Something is unhealthy in the system. 
The symbolism of nida blood is that that's the nature of people. We have elements within ourselves that are not healthy. But Zova or Zov, that is an impurity that the person has goaded out of their own Yetzirah. In other words, there is a Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is going to try to tempt us. Sometimes we push the Yetzirah. Sometimes we try to activate the Yetzirah. As the Sefer Achinach says, this is, That when do the various forms of this impurity called Zov or Zova affect a person? When the person has gone off the straight of narrow, uh, straight and narrow, and become involved in inappropriate behavior. So now, when a person is a zov, when a person is in a spiritually very poor state, you might think they are susceptible to total contamination. Because this person has wandered into the kind of bad behavior that even human nature doesn't look for. Even then, the Torah's kind of more specifically to us, Rashi explains, that's not how it is. When the Zav impacts a person holistically, fully, then it is possible. Heset, when the entire system has become totally contaminated, yes, then the tumor can go right through. But if it's a, just a temporary touch, even of the worst kind of impurity that a person maliciously, deliberately chose to engage in, that will never affect the essence of who you are. As the Rambam famously tells us, that even if there's a Jew who the only way to get them to perform a mitzvah is through force, the compulsion that we use on this person it's only to break through the external barriers of Yitzro Yushatokvoy that the Yitzhahara has hijacked the system. But if you dig deeper and you get to the essence of who the person is, even at the time that you're fighting with them, he wants to be Jewish, he wants to do all the mitzvahs. That external force and pressure gets rid of the external dust that has settled on the person and hidden their true intent and their true wish to connect to Hashem. And it activates and reveals the truth of Hashem even in the world. That every single Jew says, I want to be Jewish. And I want to do all of the mitzvahs. And uh, as we know, the just that awareness is enough to bring Moshiach now.